put my cane at the foot of the cross there. Uh, I broke my ankle this summer. <laughs> it's not what I said. <laughs> uh, it was Father's Day weekend. as the Monday morning, actually, about 2.30 in the morning. I passed out in my kitchen. And um, I took the dog out this morning for the first time since Father's Day without a wheelchair, without a crutch, without a cane. Isn't the Lord good? Yeah. Hold on. I want to read a passage of Scripture from Mark chapter 10. I've been chewing on this for 20 years, and I just... I see something different every time. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Anyone remember where you were 56 years ago today? It was Friday. Does anybody remember? Maybe this is a historian's trap. Uh, I used to fill up gas, and I'd always try to stomp on some famous date in history. And so to this day, I can stomp on 1066. This is the only thing my daughters know about the Middle Ages. 1066, Battle of Hastings, my 180 students, bless you. Uh, On this date in 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I was in Miss Ibis' third grade class. We got home early that day, and it covered the three networks. That's all there were in those days. I'm a dinosaur. Uh, When John emailed me last spring, I was on sabbatical. I was reading Dante. All of it. I'd never done that before. And he said, would you speak in chapel on November 22nd next year? And I thought, oh, that's the day C.S. Lewis died. Of course I will. (laughs) 
Oh, I'm dead serious. Uh, he died on exactly the same day in the same year as John F. Kennedy. And so this is a special day in my home. Next week, he's, his birthday's a week from today, by the way, so don't forget to celebrate. We do in my house. And I'm now the same age as C.S. Lewis when he died. That makes me feel old. And you say, well, who's C.S. Lewis? I, many of you know he was a professor. He was the tutor and teacher at Oxford for 30 years, and he uh, is the clear-headed apologist defender of the faith. He writes wonderful imaginative literature, children's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, advice from a senior devil to his nephew, screw tape letters, the great divorce. That's C.S. Lewis. I discovered C.S. Lewis in the spring of 1975. He's been one of my most important guides uh, for the past almost 45 years now. And uh, and I thought, oh, I'll speak about C.S. Lewis. And I think the Lord said, why don't you talk about C.S. Lewis on that day in chapel? And I said, are you sure, Lord? He said, yeah, we'll have a way of doing this that will be okay. But I got married a year out of high school. I had no intention of going to college. That's not what people in my family did. And a year after we got married, 11 months after we got married, our first daughter was born. And then a week after that, I got laid off from the factory where I worked. A cousin of mine handed me a book by C.S. Lewis. I didn't know who C.S. Lewis was. I began to read that, Mere Christianity. I was laid off for six months. In that six-month period, I read 40 books by and about C.S. Lewis. It changed my life. I'm convinced that's why I went to college. I would have never gone to college had it not been for first being laid off and then discovering this important guide. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful uh, principle that he says that an author or a poet is not supposed to be the spectacle the author is supposed to be a pair of spectacles that helps you to see more clearly. And this passage of Scripture, it just dawned on me a few months ago how C.S. Lewis has given me a pair of spectacles that I, I look through all the time. And, and I want to I talk about five lessons I've learned from wearing those spectacles over the past 45 years and what it has done in helping me wrestle with this uh, fascinating passage of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, we find about, out about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the, the, the original couple, Adam and Eve, eat from that tree. Do you ever wonder what God is trying to keep them from? And maybe that's part of the temptation. What's God trying to keep you from? Can you really trust him? Is he really good? Well, he doesn't want them to know evil, of course. But did you ever think it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That's interesting. Do you think maybe he didn't want them to know good? Independent of him? Because then maybe it's not good. Is that possible? So the story of the rich young ruler, it's about the dangers of money, right? Wealth? Wait a minute. This scenario came to me the other day. 
You get a letter from a law office. You have a long-lost aunt that you didn't even know about, and she died in the Aleutian Islands somewhere. And uh, believe it or not, she left you $50,000. Do you say, oh, good grief, that's terrible? I doubt it. (laughs) You'd probably say, man, that's good. Aunt who? And then you get a letter the next day, same law office, and you're thinking, this is bad news. Sorry, we made a mistake. We left a zero off. You are actually going to inherit $500,000. You don't say, oh, that's even worse than I thought. (laughs) Right? Good? Now it's better. You get a letter the next day. Okay, the shoe's about to drop. We cannot be more embarrassed, but we actually dropped two zeros. You just inherited $5 million. Honey, grab the kids, hide, hide, we're in danger. That's not what we would do, is it? Don't we just say, that was good, that was better, and this is the best news I've ever heard. And therein lies the danger. I think good, better, best news I ever heard. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, the rich young ruler said. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. That used to get me. I think, oh my goodness, did Jesus just say he wasn't God? I don't think so. I think Jesus is challenging the rich young ruler's notion of goodness. That's what I think is going on here. Why do you call me good? What do you know about good? And Jesus says, you know the law. Piece of cake. Done that since I was a kid. So wearing the spectacles of C.S. Lewis, who's given me vocabulary and categories and a way of seeing, a way of thinking, let me, let me run through these five lessons, like a decoder ring or something. First lesson, C.S. Lewis's principle of first and second things. He said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. You know what God's greatest rivals in the world are? His own good gifts to us. Because that's what an idol is. This is all Satan has to work with in the garden, folks. God said, that's good, that's good, that's good. What did he say when he was done? Very good. It's all good. That's all there is to work with. And we are lured away from God by God's own good gifts. Lewis calls it the sweet poison of the false infinite. Man, he has a way with words. Like he learned that from reading Chesterton's little biography of St. Francis. And so Lewis has this wonderful dialectic. I think it's very biblical. I think the Bible teaches us to both feast and fast, doesn't it? Feast on what? God's good gifts. Fast from what? God's good gifts that we're so tempted to turn into idols. Lewis also said this. I jumped up or raised up last night in bed 
Since I broke my ankle, I go to bed like at 7.30 at night. It's so weird. (laughs) To let us down while legitimately attracting us is the very characteristic of a second thing which has been treated as a first thing. He said that in the four loves that I was listening to last night. So a dialectic of enjoyment and renunciation. I can almost dance. Uh, it's, it's a, Lewis is so wonderful about trying to keep us on the horse. It's, it's, I always use this Luther quote. We are like a drunken German peasant who after falling off a horse on one side, get up and proceed to fall off on the other side. And I, never, I could never find where I, I found that in Luther. I didn't find it in Luther. It's in a Lewis essay called The World's Last Night. And, and that's what Lewis has helped me do. He's helped me to stay on the horse. So a dialectic of renunciation and enjoyment, feasting and fasting. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utter, utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Wow. It means like we're getting ready for what? Murder and... They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug out cisterns, wells, broken cisterns that hold no water. Dr. Kinlaw, another one of my guides, and you need to find a preacher. You need to find an author. You need to find a bunch of them, but you need to find like you know, a handful or one and, and make it your life study. And they, and they give you these spectacles that, that give you categories and language and furniture and help you see things. Why do we need guides? Why do we, man, did I learn how important people are? We need help. We need help. And when I was absolutely helpless this summer, that was brought back to me in a fresh new way. We are so interdependent on one another, and this is the way God wants it. And we need guides because we're blind, because Screwtape's a liar. He said, your eyes will be opened if you eat of this tree. And they weren't. We're blind. And we need guides. Dr. Kinlaw said that that verse in, those two verses in Jeremiah, he said he thought that was the key to the whole book of Jeremiah. What struck me recently was it's the, it's the key to the whole Bible. It's the key to the human condition. God has offered himself to us as an all-satisfying fountain of living water, and we say, no thanks, I'll go look someplace else for that. Idolatry. It's not just an Old Testament problem. It's one of the last things written in the New Testament. Dear children, keep yourself from idols, John says at the end of 1 John. And C.S. Lewis has taught me how to spot these idols, the sweet poison of the false infinite with the spectacles that I've had, to focus, to wander off with God's good gifts and to lose sight of the giver. Religious people, my people will do this. Terry, my wife, another one of my guides who did everything for me this summer, she, she came in and shared this verse the other day, 2 Kings 17.41. This just floored me. Well, not literally, that happened in the summer. 
Even while these people were worshiping God, even while these people were worshiping God, they were serving their idols. Isn't that extraordinary? We can even be serving God and what we're re- we want God as a means to some other end. We want God for what he gives us, his gifts. Surely not us, our idols. What are our, our idols? We don't have Baals and Zeus on our mantle. Your spouse, your country, your political party, your academic institution, your ministry, your academic discipline, football, baseball. These are all good gifts, and they can rival God for our affections and a thousand other good gifts from God. My health, my riches, my reputation, my home, my retirement, sure, and a thousand other good gifts from God. So, another lesson from wearing the spectacles of C.S. Lewis. Reality is iconoclastic, and God himself is the great iconoclast. And an iconoclast were somebody who broke idols, broke images, icons. It's someone who attacks cherished beliefs and institutions. And Lewis says reality is iconoclastic. You think you've got it figured out and boom, you're on the floor and you broke your ankle in two places. And you're wondering, God, are you really good? What's going on? What are you doing? I just had a sabbatical. That was the greatest semester of my 34 years and this is the worst summer I've ever had. I think I'll look back and I'll find the summer was much more helpful than the spring sabbatical. Isn't that weird? Reality is iconoclastic, and God himself is the great iconoclast. Look at the takedown. I read Dante, and you know before Dante ascends into paradise, he went down and he circled down and he circled down and he circled down into the pits of hell. Look at the takedown in this story of the rich young ruler. The takedown, is this what loves look like? Is this what love looks like? Jesus said, so you've kept the law your whole life. What's the summary of the law? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Follow your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so Jesus says, let's do a little test. You can keep your money or you can keep God. Which do you choose? And it hits this young man, I think for the first time in his life, that God is not uppermost in his affections. His riches are. But your riches don't have to be money. That's not the point. We can be rich in all kinds of things. We can be rich in goodness. But now it's a goodness that's severed from God, and so guess what? It's not good. It's not good. And so Jesus takes down the rich young ruler to show him the truth about his heart. Question. Is Jesus trying to make the rich young ruler poor or richer? Don't, for, don't miss what it says in that passage. One thing you lack, give away all your money. You'll just have God left. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. My pastor a few weeks ago said, Jesus is not trying to get something from the rich young ruler. He's trying to do something for him. You preachers, you always want our money. Jesus doesn't want his money. He wants his heart. He wants his affections. Your money or God. Now he knows the truth. And we're not sure. God, are you good? Are you safe? Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver, the kid, the, the, the four children find out that Aslan's not a man, he's a lion. And Susan says, ooh, uh, a lion, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? What's Mr. Beaver say? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, I tell you. He's good. He's the king. I wonder if we have that backwards sometimes. Are we more convinced that God is safe and question whether he's good or whether he's better or whether he is the best? Is God good? Is he better than his gifts? Lesson three, C.S. Lewis, the pyromaniac. This is the first place I ever came across this. I had a graduate school professor who said, the difference between the Buddha and Jesus is this. The Buddha was a fire extinguisher and Jesus was a pyromaniac. Listen to what Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. Yes, we are to take up our crosses in order to follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, he said that came from the Stoics and Kant. Indeed, if you look at the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, we would see that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are like children, Lewis says, making mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased with God's gifts, and we're not sure that God is better or the best. Jesus wants the rich young ruler, what, not to have treasure? No, to have treasure that lasts. And so you give up your gifts that you've turned into idols, you end up getting them back as gifts, Lewis thought. And you'll never lose sight of the giver. Is God really good? So turning around. Lewis talks about turning around all the time. My favorite image of conversion is the first time he went to Oxford. And he was so excited to be there. And he kept walking and it just got drearier and drearier and drearier. And then he found himself out in the open country. And it was the ultimate disappointment. You know what he did? He turned around and he looked behind him. And then he said, never more beautiful, the dreaming spires of Oxford. Folks, is it possible that we're walking in the wrong direction? And that what we need to do is to turn around. 
we're always pressing on to the, what, next thing and the newest thing. That can become an idol. Sometimes we just need to look back. Sometimes we need to go back. Sometimes we need to return to what we left. Last lesson I've learned from C.S. Lewis. There are no ordinary people. Because you hear this and you think, okay, so you and Jesus and your private devotions and your neighbors, what, a second thing, a secondary thing? No. It's interesting. Jesus was asked, what's the great commandment? And it sounds like he gave two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe that's not so much, it is kind of a first and second thing, but maybe it's more like a single coin that has heads and tails. Because you can turn your neighbor, you can turn your spouse into an idol, absolutely. But you can't ignore your neighbor. You can't love God and ignore your neighbor. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. Last Lewis quote from The Weight of Glory, the end. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, that we are helping one another, he says, every day, to one or the other of those destinations. So, what's the point? C.S. Lewis is not the point. Jesus is the point. I found a verse this summer in John 5, 39, 40. You know, even the Bible's not the point. That's what I discovered Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You know what he says next? But the scriptures point to me, and yet you do not come to me for this eternal life. C.S. Lewis is not the point. He can be an idol too, and so I need to do the dance of enjoyment and renunciation. And I love Lewis because he points me to Jesus. And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? You know the answer to that question.